Welcome to another lecture in the MSK Cornerstone course. This is a continuation of our sports medicine series. In this lecture, we will be addressing shoulder instability. The content of this lecture will focus on traumatic anterior instability, posterior instability, dislocation events, and multidirectional instability, as well as the rare luxatio erecte, or inferior dislocation. All right, let's begin by talking about traumatic injury or shoulder instability. As always, I want to review some pertinent anatomy prior to discussing the clinical presentation and treatment options. So what are the static stabilizers of the glenohumeral joint? The labrum, the superior glenohumeral ligament, the middle glenohumeral ligament, and the inferior glenohumeral ligament, which is subdivided into anterior and posterior bands. The articular congruity and negative intraarticular pressure also help to stabilize the joint, but for our purposes today, we'll be talking about the labrum and the ligaments. So what does the superior glenohumeral ligament do? It prevents inferior translation with the arm in an adducted position or at the patient's side. How about the middle glenohumeral ligament? What does that do? It prevents anterior and posterior translation when the arm is at 45 degrees of external rotation in abduction. And what does the anterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament do? It prevents anterior translation of the head with the arm in 90 degrees of abduction and full external rotation. Now, how about the posterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament? What does that do? It prevents posterior translation with the arm in 90 degrees of flexion, adduction, and internal rotation. Now, how about some labral morphology? What is a Buford complex? It is a cord-like middle glenohumeral ligament that inserts into the base of the biceps anchor, and there is an absence of the anterior superior labrum. All right, so that's a review of the static stabilizers. Now, how will a patient with instability typically present? Typically, the patient will present after sustaining a trauma to the arm when it is in an abducted and externally rotated position. This will cause an anterior-inferior dislocation. The patient may come into the office, emergency room, or field with the arm held in an externally rotated position and slight abduction if they have not yet been reduced. There are a variety of reduction methods. However, there is a key testable point and that is to ensure a post-operative reduction or axillary or valpo radiograph is obtained to ensure that the joint is appropriately reduced. Again, you want to make sure there is an axillary or valpo radiograph obtained post-reduction to ensure the joint is appropriately reduced. If the patient presents with a history of a dislocation, and now they come in complaining of symptoms of instability, what key physical exam findings can we look for? First, the patient must be assessed for increased ligamentous laxity. This can be done by calculating their Baton-Horan scale and by looking for a sulcus sign with the patient's arm at their side that does not decrease with external rotation. A high score on the Baton-Horan scale or a sulcus sign that does not reduce points toward increased ligamentous laxity. A key physical exam finding for anterior instability is the apprehension relocation test. With the patient supine, the arm is brought into 90 degrees of abduction and 90 degrees of external rotation. This position may cause the patient to feel as though the shoulder is going to dislocate, which is considered a positive apprehension sign. If at that point you apply pressure to the anterior shoulder and it relieves this sensation of instability, they have a positive relocation sign. Plain radiographs need to be assessed to rule out any other fractures and assure the joint is relocated. What are the names of the radiographic views to specifically look for glenoid bone loss in a Hill-Sachs lesion? The West Point view evaluates for glenoid bone loss 
and the striker notch view evaluates for a Hill-Sachs defect. After we obtain our radiographs, if we suspect the patient has continual instability, an MRI scan or an MRI arthrogram are particularly useful in evaluating for any labral damage, ligamentous injury, chondral defects, glenoid bone loss, and any possible Hill-Sachs defects. In sports medicine, we love to create acronyms for pathology. So let's go over some of the common pathologic findings we see after a shoulder dislocation and the acronyms we use to describe them. So first, what is a Bankart lesion? Bankart lesions are a tearing of the anterior inferior labrum and the associated insertion of the anterior inferior band of the glenohumeral ligament from the glenoid. This makes sense as it is the primary check rein against anterior translation with the arm in the 90-90 position or 90 degrees of abduction, 90 degrees of external rotation. This injury pattern is seen in approximately 90% of patients with a dislocation event. So if a Bankart lesion is a tear off the glenoid side, what do we call a tear off the humeral side? This is a Hagel lesion, H-A-G-L. This occurs in a slightly older population. MRI arthrogram will commonly show the J sign, with contrast extravasation from the joint capsule. It is vital to recognize a Hagel lesion. It is vital to recognize a Hagel lesion, as failure to address it may lead to recurrent instability if not treated. What do we call if a piece of cartilage comes off with the anterior labrum? This is a GLAD lesion, or a glenoid labral articular defect, and what occurs in an ALPSA lesion, A-L-P-S-A. In this case, a torn labral piece has displaced and healed medially down the glenoid neck. We refer to this as an anterior labral periosteal sleeve avulsion, or an ALPSA lesion. Okay, so how about the bony defects that are associated with an anterior dislocation? In up to 80% of patients, we will see a Hill-Sachs defect, which is an impaction injury on the posterior superior side of the humeral head. These become clinically significant if it engages on external rotation and abduction. This can be assessed arthroscopically. Furthermore, some patients have a fracture of the anterior rim of the glenoid, known as a bony Bankart lesion. This needs to be diagnosed preoperatively, especially in the setting of recurrent instability, as failure to address this bone loss or fracture may lead to a failure of your surgical treatment. If you see an isolated lesser tuberosity fracture, what would you assume it's associated with? a posterior shoulder dislocation. Patients over the age of 50 that sustain an anterior shoulder dislocation may also present with a fracture of what? The greater tuberosity. If you have a dislocation in a patient over the age of 40, what other structure should you worry about being damaged? The rotator cuff. 30% of patients over the age of 40 with a dislocation will sustain a rotator cuff tear. This increases to 80% of patients over the age of 60 that sustain a dislocation event. Remember that association between rotator cuff tears and elderly dislocators, as this has been tested in the past. And finally, what is the most commonly injured nerve following a dislocation? The axillary nerve, and this occurs in up to 40% of dislocations. All right, so how do we treat our dislocation and instability patients? Well, first, if they're dislocated, obviously, you need to reduce them. Ensure post-op reduction radiographs are obtained, including the axillary or Velpo view. Management of a first-time dislocator needs to be tailored to the individual patient needs. Immobilization in a gunslinger or external rotation brace leads to a more anatomic reduction of the anterior labrum. However, equivalent recurrence rates have been seen when compared to a simple sling. In-season athletes are typically treated conservatively in an attempt to return them to sport during their season. 
They must be aware, however, that they run a risk of recurrence, particularly in patients in their teens and 20s. Age at the time of the first dislocation event is the most important predictor of the risk of recurrence, as well as participation in contact sports. Patients may return to play when pain is resolved and range of motion and strength are equal to the uninjured side. Operative management includes arthroscopic or open bank art repair. Arthroscopic bank art repairs have shown equivalent recurrence rates with open repairs. However, these patients also have the added benefit of decreased pain and greater post-operative motion. An open repair is beneficial if the patient has significant bony defects. If you are missing 25-30% to 30% of the glenoid, then a soft tissue procedure is likely to fail. The bone loss can be addressed with either a ladder J or Bristow procedure. Remember that number as it has been frequently tested. If you have up to 25 or 30% of the glenoid lost, then a soft tissue procedure is likely to fail and it needs to be addressed with a ladder J or Bristow procedure. The ladder J procedure involves transferring the coracoid to the anterior glenoid along with the conjoined tendon to create an increased bony surface and soft tissue sling preventing anterior translation. What is the treatment of choice if you have a large, engaging hill sacs defect? A remplissage. If you have greater than 25% bone loss in the humeral head, then a remplissage may be warranted. This involves tacking the infraspinatus and posterior capsule into the defect, thereby eliminating its ability to engage the glenoid rim. Hagel lesions tend to be treated with an open surgical repair of the ligament back to its insertion on the humerus. All right, let's change gears now and talk about posterior shoulder pathology. Here's a quick story of how I remember posterior shoulder dislocations. Each March, Miami plays host to the Winter Music Conference, also known as Ultra Music Festival. For those of you that don't know what this is, I suggest you pause the lecture and do a quick Google image search. It is quite the sight to see. It is also a very interesting time to work in the Jackson Memorial Emergency Department in downtown Miami. Our typical indigent patient population becomes interspersed with scantily clad 20-somethings wearing body glitter and feathers of some sort and usually seem after doing something incredibly stupid to themselves. Needless to say, on one particular occasion, I saw a young gentleman that had taken enough drugs to stay awake for three or four days, and on the third day, his body said, you know what, I've had enough, and he had a seizure and fell off his hotel balcony. Not only did he have a calcaneus fracture underneath these furry boots he was wearing, but he also had bilateral posterior shoulder dislocations. I couldn't believe it. It was just like the textbooks always told me. Bilateral posterior shoulder dislocations following a seizure. So after removing his fake angel wings, which were apparently not quite flight ready, we then proceeded to reduce both of his posterior shoulder dislocations. So I hope that that guy, wherever he is, knows how much he taught me about shoulder dislocations. And I'm sure he's off teaching other people interesting medical tidbits every day today. So let's talk a little bit about posterior shoulder dislocations, and then we'll move on to posterior instability. Posterior dislocations typically present after a trauma, seizure, or electrical shock. The increased strength of the internal rotators of the shoulder versus the external rotators will internally rotate the humerus and drive the head out posteriorly. These patients will typically present with their arm in a locked, internally rotated position with limited external rotation. They may have a prominent posterior shoulder and the coracoid may be easily palpated in a thinner patient. Standard radiographic trauma series of the shoulder should be obtained with great attention paid to the axillary or velpo view. This will show the humeral head posterior to the glenoid. Up to 50% of posterior shoulder dislocations are missed in the emergency department. An AP view may show what we call a light bulb sign as the humerus is maximally internally rotated. 
Also, be sure to look for any overlap between the humeral head and the glenoid. In the setting of chronic or recurrent posterior shoulder dislocations, a CT scan or MRI may be obtained to evaluate for any glenoid bone loss or the size of a reverse hill sacs lesion in the humeral head. All acute dislocations should be treated with closed reduction and sling immobilization and external rotation. In six weeks, the patient can begin physical therapy working on rotator cuff strengthening and periscapular exercises. In chronic dislocations less than six months old in which there is a large reverse hill sacs defect but compromising less than 50% of the humeral head surface, a lesser tuberosity transfer with the subscapularis or modified McLaughlin procedure may be indicated. If, however, the dislocation has been missed longer than six months, if there is severe humeral head arthritis, or if a reverse hill sacs lesion compromising greater than 50% of the humeral head is present, then a hemiarthroplasty may need to be performed. Let's turn our attention now from posterior shoulder dislocations to chronic posterior instability. Unlike anterior instability, posterior instability tends to present with pain rather than with a sensation of instability. It is felt that the patient sustaining repetitive microtrauma with the arm in a flexed, adducted, and internally rotated position may sustain posterior labral tearing and avulsions of the labrum. For these patients, think of an offensive lineman with the arms in a blocking position or a weightlifter with their arms in the press position. The provocative physical exam findings for posterior instability include the jerk test and Kim test. When both the Kim and jerk tests are positive, there's a 97% sensitivity for diagnosing a posterior labral tear. Posterior load and shift testing, as well as testing for ligamentous laxity, is also important in making the diagnosis. Standard radiographic evaluation should be obtained. Most times, radiographs will be normal. Again, if you see an isolated lesser tuberosity fragment, know that the patient likely sustained a posterior shoulder dislocation. CT scan and MRI can evaluate the bony morphology and any ligamentous or labral damage. Patients may have an avulsion in the posterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament, a posterior bankart lesion, a reverse hill sacs lesion, or a posterior glenoid rim fracture. Initial treatment for posterior instability includes conservative management of physical therapy, rest, and anti-inflammatories. If the patient fails physical therapy and still has pain with activity, then they may require an open or arthroscopic posterior labral repair. This may be done in conjunction with a posterior capsular shift. Recurrence and axillary or suprascapular nerve injury are common complications. However, most patients do very well. All right, so what are tubs and ambry? The Tubbs and Ambry mnemonics are an excellent way to remember the differences between acute unilateral dislocations and multidirectional instability. So Tubbs, standing for traumatic, unilateral, bank art, and surgery, indicates traumatic unilateral instability. Ambry, standing for atraumatic, multidirectional, bilateral, rehabilitation, and inferior capsular plication, is an excellent way to remember multidirectional instability and its treatment option. So that being said, let's talk about multidirectional instability. First, a quick anatomic review. What are the four static stabilizers of the shoulder? The glenohumeral ligaments, the glenoid labrum, the articular congruity, and the negative intraarticular pressure. And what are the three dynamic stabilizers? The rotator cuff muscles, the biceps tendon, and the periscapular muscles. What score and classification system do we use to assess for ligamentous laxity? The Baton-Horan scale, and how do we score that? 
The patient is assessed to see if they can adduct their thumb down to their forearm, if we can hyperextend the MCP joint of the small finger past 90 degrees, if you can hyperextend the elbow, if you can hyperextend the knee, and can they touch their palms to the floor by bending at the waist with the knees extended. The highest possible score that can be obtained is a 9 out of 9. Scores greater than 6 have been associated with hyperligamentous conditions like Ehlers-Danlos disease and Marfan syndrome. Patients with multidirectional instability typically present with pain rather than instability. If they do present with instability, it is important to assess whether this is voluntary or involuntary. Some patients may have dislocation events at night while sleeping. Multidirectional instabilities frequently seen in overhead athletes, including volleyball players and swimmers. On physical exam, it is vital to assess the generalized ligamentous laxity of the patient as well as a sulcus sign. A sulcus sign that does not reduce with external rotation of the arm indicates a deficient or lax rotator interval. Anterior and posterior load and shift tests should also be performed, as well as an apprehension relocation test and Kim and jerk testing. Plain radiographs will typically be normal. An MRI arthrogram can help to depict any labral pathology, rotator cuff pathology, or a patulous capsule. Remember the R in AMBRI. These patients should undergo extensive physical therapy. Most surgeons prefer at least a six-month course of dedicated rotator cuff and periscapular strengthening prior to ever even considering any operative intervention. Closed-chain kinetic exercises are emphasized for scapular and rotator cuff strengthening. If the patient fails extensive physical therapy and the pain interferes with their activity of daily living or sports performance in a high-level athlete, then operative intervention may be considered. Patients may undergo arthroscopic inferior capsular plication or rotator interval closure. Rotator interval closure will severely restrict external rotation with the patient's arm at their side. Great care must be taken to avoid damaging the axillary nerve when performing an inferior capsular plication as it lies within one centimeter inferior to the capsular soft tissue at the 6 o'clock position. Abduction, external rotation, and longitudinal traction will make the capsule taut removing the axillary nerve away from the glenoid when performing the plication between the 5 o'clock and 7 o'clock positions. Furthermore, the posterior branch of the axillary nerve lies within 1 millimeter of the posterior capsule and glenoid and is at risk during posterior stabilization procedures. Finally, let's talk about the rare inferior dislocation event. If you want to know how a patient with an inferior shoulder dislocation presents, simply Google Drew Brees shoulder dislocation and you'll find a video of him walking off the field with his shoulder held in an abducted position. This is the rarest type of shoulder dislocation, and it has a very high incidence of both neurovascular and ligamentous damage. Patients will present with their arm locked in the abducted position. AP radiographs will show an inferior glenohumeral dislocation. An MRI is indicated following a reduction maneuver to assess for any labral or ligamentous damage. Patients with an inferior dislocation event are at risk for axillary nerve neuropraxia as well as axillary artery thrombosis. Treatment algorithms are similar to those with anterior and posterior dislocation events. Similarly, labral damage will need to be repaired using arthroscopic or open fixation. Alright, so that's the conclusion of our talk on shoulder instability, including traumatic anterior instability, multidirectional instability, posterior instability, and inferior instability. As always, check back frequently for lecture topic updates. Thanks for listening.